Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. In the world of artificial intelligence, there's been one name that's been on everyone's lips lately. Chat GPT. Chat GPT. Chat GPT. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. An artificial intelligence chatbot capable of doing everything from writing essays, computer code, even passing the bar exam. Was it really only a year ago that ChatGPT was launched by OpenAI when it seemed like the future arrived ahead of schedule? A revolutionary tool or growing threat, depending on who you ask. Some observers were giddy with excitement. Others, fearful of such powerful technology. We will eventually be in the presence of something smarter than we are. There is something inherently dangerous for the dumber party in that relationship. An already fierce debate became more heated between those who warned artificial intelligence would undermine education and eliminate our jobs and maybe even civilization itself, and those who say AI can help solve humanity's biggest problems. Meanwhile, ChatGPT has become part of everyday life for millions of people, used to write anything from resumes and thank you notes to Elizabethan sonnets and even critiques of ChatGPT itself. But there are skeptics who don't buy all the hope or the hype that AI is destined to change all things for all time. The inevitabilism of technology going from 1 to 60 and then staying sticking around forever, it's just not true. We, we discard technologies all the time, including technologies that people like. That's Cory Doctorow. He's a technology writer and award-winning author of science fiction and young adult novels. And he was one part of a panel discussion I moderated at the Provocation Ideas Festival in Stratford, Ontario in November about the promise and the perils of AI. The other panelist was Vass Bednar. Do we really want to read a book that an algorithm wrote that, you know, jumbled everything? Do we really want to listen to, you know, music that's being made in, in that way? Vass is the executive director of the Master of Public Policy in Digital Society program at McMaster University. I know you guys think about this all the time, but I'd like to know what your answer would be or how you would complete the sentence. And I'll do it first. Artificial intelligence will one day take away my job. <laughs> That's the first thing that comes to mind when I say that. So artificial intelligence will, Corey? One day disappoint a lot of investors. <laughs> Vast? I think about how artificial intelligence narrows what I can see and learn and listen to and how I don't even notice. So artificial intelligence will narrow and limit my world and worldviews. Um, what's been said, and both of you have commented on this, is that artificial intelligence is neither artificial nor intelligent. Could you expand on that? 
there are lots of useful jobs that we can give to a statistical inference engine. Um, but statistical inference engines have their limits. For one thing, they're intrinsically conservative, sort of small c conservative. A statistical inference en engine makes predictions based on what used to happen. And so all a statistical inference engine can do is try and make you like you were, or try and make things stay the way that they are. So if you've ever used autocomplete, you know that if you use it for a while and your phone is learning your habits and you type, hey, the next word is gonna be babe. Or <laughs> if you say, can you come over, it's gonna finish with for dinner. And if you use a phrase that you've never used before, it's gonna find the median phrase that all autocomplete users use and try and push you towards that. So it's a kind of engine for repeating things that used to happen. You know, by definition, what we think about when we think of automation is um, taking things that get repeated a lot and making it so that human beings don't have to pay as much attention to them. You know, there's plenty of things I'd like to see automated in my life. But um, the idea that this is intelligence, I think, is uh, not only missold, but deliberately so for AI to do what Morgan Stanley says it's going to do when they say this is a $13 trillion industry, is it, it's going to have to allow bosses to fire $13 trillion worth of workers, right? That's what they mean when they mean it's a $13 trillion industry. And I don't think that the world's economy has $13 trillion worth of repetitive tasks in it, which leaves us with the conclusion that either they're lying or they are, like so many of our bosses are, insatiably horny for firing competent people and replacing them with bad automation, which is a thing that we've all encountered when we've called an interactive voice response system. And instead of speaking to someone who knows how to connect your call, we spent 10 minutes saying 17, no, 17, no, 1, 7, 17, <laughs> operator, Speak operator. to an operator, zero, an op zero, zero, none. zero, human yeah. being, right? In markets in which there is very little competition, replacing competent people with substandard automation may be a viable strategy, right? If, if any of you remember Lily Tomlin on Laugh-In, when she would do those fake bell system ads as a telephone operator, they would end with, we don't care, we don't have to, we're the phone company. Vas? So you sort of asked, you know, neither artificial nor intelligent. And I think something important, especially in a Canadian context, the Corey you hit on, is this like, drive for efficiency too, that we have come to value this in some way. And we have this idea, if we apply this technology or these technologies in different facets of our life and our workplace, we're going to have these gains. And where are these gains going to go? Who's going to reap their spoils? You know, is it really, are we really getting this amazing insight about our sleep that we are, you know, feeding data to something that's sort of dressed up, uh, as something that's like healthful and for us, but who and where we're sort of giving information to, I think we're we're dressing up in this conversation about artificial intelligence. So what is it that we mean when we say that we're building machines that are smarter than us? What does it mean for a machine to be smarter than a human being? I mean, I think it means someone's lying <laughs> because given that we don't have a working definition of what smart means, <laughs> you know, describing the computer as more spiritual than you or smarter than you or any other adjective that we don't have a good, you know, uh, empirical definition for is like an intrinsically unfalsifiable statement. Saying that we have a machine that can automate things, that can spot things that humans can't spot, that can work with a human as a kind of partner to catch things that humans miss, that's fine. But remember, you know, when they say, oh, well, we've got an algorithm that catches some of the mistakes 
that um, radiologists make when they look at your lung x-rays. What they don't mean is the radiologist is going to spend as much time as they ever did looking at lung x-rays. And they're going to get a second opinion from the algorithm, which has different blind spots to the human. And they'll compare notes. And if it turns out that um, they don't agree, there will be one fewer x-ray looked at that day because the oncologist or the radiologist is going to go back and look at the x-ray again to, to resolve that disagreement. Nobody is investing in AI in the hopes that radiologists will spend more money looking at x-rays than they do today. They're investing in AI in the hopes that they will fire half the radiologists and double the rate at which they look at x-rays. And I think that when you add up all of the consequential things that AI wants to automate in which they are both consequential and error sensitive such that you might be able to improve the outcome of the system by pairing a human with an AI such that the two of them work together with no cost savings but an improvement in equality and, and in uh, reliability. And you take those out because there's just no market for that stuff. What you're left with is a very small number of applications for AI and a lot of investors who are losing a lot of money right now producing loss leaders in the hopes that people will embed AI in their workflows such that when the price goes up, they won't be able to walk away from that integration and they will pay whatever the license fee is. I have to admit a, a great amount of ignorance as to what is or isn't possible with artificial intelligence. I listened to a show recently where they talk about chat GPT-4, which some researchers suggest can actually reason, can internalize an instruction to draw a unicorn when it's never seen a unicorn, or is able to pass the Turing test or the LSAT. How do I situate that in what you just said, Corey? So if it turns out that the standard test that we give to lawyers is something that a chatbot can answer, maybe we're not assessing our lawyers very well, right? I, I think that's, in fact, I, I would fully support the idea that any assessment that we use to measure the merit of a human that a chatbot can outperform should be scrapped as a measure and we should go to better qualitative measures that may be harder to assess in bulk, but which would produce a better picture of um, what people's aptitudes and interests really are. I, I speak as a Canadian expatriate who lives in the United States and whose daughter is going through the Common Core curriculum where about a third of her instruction hours are spent teaching her how to take standardized tests. Um, so I, I think that, you know, we can agree that standardized assessment tools that began as a way to evaluate the, the conduct of education and where it could stand with improvement have become targets themselves. Uh, and there's a law. When a metric becomes a target, it ceases to be useful as either. And I think it's really cool that with statistical inference, you can figure out what a unicorn should look like, even if you've never heard of a unicorn. That's great. But I don't know that it tells you that there's something intelligent about it. I think it tells you something really interesting about what the limits of statistical inference are that is novel, mm -hmm. interesting philosophically. I just don't think that it justifies a mass retooling of society around inference engines that we know are mm -hmm. prone to all sorts of gaffes right. and where every um, thought of a gaffe coming in is hand-waved away with this idea of humans in the loop where we are never intending to put a human in the loop in the meaningful way where they mm -hmm. spend as much time looking at the problem as they would before and then get a second opinion from an algorithm. The more powerful it is, the more wisdom we need 
in, in the way we deal with this. And right now, companies are a bit in the haste and may not take the precautions that would otherwise be warranted. So in the short term, I think we need to accelerate the, the, the countermeasures to uh, reduce risks. And that's regulation. So Vas, help me understand then why pioneers in AI like Jeffrey Hinton or Joshua Bengio, um, as well as leading companies and researchers, have implored governments to regulate. What are their concerns, you know, you think boil down to where it comes to AI? So I think we have this idea with artificial intelligence that if we regulate its production in a way that makes us all comfortable, that we feel that it's like ethical or moral or that it's being properly built, then we can worry a little bit less about the application side, right? Because we're kind of trying to have two conversations at once. How do we build and then how can we use this? In terms of speaking to why AI pioneers are, are worried and sort of raising these flags, you know, perhaps it's because it's their job to be ambitious and to dream about how this could be used or should be used and will be widely adopted. You mentioned, you know, large language models and us playing around with ChatGPT. I mean, is this not just mass user testing, right? We're sort of letting people play around and learn about and learn from models in this kind of what ends up being a race amongst the largest companies to have the dominant model. And who are really kind of stuck in this cyclical kind of talent circulation, poaching kind of people back and forth to build what? Again, looking for efficiency, this idea we're going to do things. If we do things faster, we're going to be able to do them better. If we just know a little bit more, we can make a slightly better prediction. And I think Corey's elements of complementing human work and human thinking is imperative. And I think, you know, there have been lots of critics before this current AI bubble who yeah. were worried about automation bias and algorithmic bias. And when they criticize AI, when they do what is often called AI ethics, what they're saying is AI is not very powerful, right? AI can make a bunch of bad decisions quickly, so quickly that maybe we can't assess them, but that is not a mark of the quality and power of AI. Meanwhile, AI boosters who talk about AI safety as distinct from AI ethics, mm. which boils down to someday the chatbot is going to wake up and turn us all into paper clips. What the subtext of what they're saying is, is AI is so powerful, it needs to be regulated. And if it's that powerful, it's probably very valuable as well. A tool that is this powerful will someday transform our whole economy in every single way. Your firm should be figuring out how to integrate AI into its processes. Governments should be finding lots of ways to encourage AI investment, giving tax breaks, creating a regulatory framework for it. And of course, let's not forget that as important as regulation is, that when a monopolist or a would-be monopolist seeks regulation, hmm. the regulation they're often seeking is something that would prevent new entry. The monopolist's first preference is usually not to be regulated at all, but their second, close second preference is regulate me in a way that only I and not my competitors can satisfy. Mm -hmm. Is there any government in the world that you know of, either of you, that is actually leading on, the, on regulation, specifically where AI is concerned? You know, Canada has tried to be fast in terms of defining when and how are we going to use artificial intelligence as a government. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of rapid prototyping is important to sort of have these statements and, and disclosure. How are we going to, who are we going to, you know, contract with on, on some of these issues? That's been very transparent. And it's almost like we're in an ideas competition globally on what the framework should be. I, I use 
frameworks plural, but really because this stuff doesn't have a geography, we're sort of finding that yeah. kind of national, subnational organizing principles don't work very well here. I mean, the, the US Copyright Office has done something very exciting, which is they said that works produced by algorithms aren't eligible for copyright, because to mm -hmm. use a bit of copyright jargon here, copyright in here is at the moment of fixation of a work of human creativity. This is why the guy who got the monkey selfie didn't get a copyright on the monkey selfie. Monkeys aren't humans. The photos that monkeys take don't attract a copyright. Same with an algorithm. Now, there's a school of thought that says that if you want to protect creative laborers from predation by the firms they work for, by training models with their work, that we should give them the individual bargainable right to restrict who can train an algorithm with their work. On the other hand, if we say to those same creative employers, you can train models with the works your, your creative workers produce, but you don't get any copyright in them and anyone can take them and sell them. I mean, look, I live in Burbank. I am steps to where the picket lines were at, at Warner, Disney, and Universal. And if there's one thing I'm 100% positive of, it's that the, the people who run those studios would rather drink a gallon of warm spit before breakfast every morning than give up one iota of copyright. And if you say to them, it's either pay your workers or you don't get a copyright in the production of your studio, they're going to pay every worker all day long and be glad to do it. If we can just broaden kind of the lens a little bit and look at big tech in general, there's not been a very promising track record to regulation, really. Maybe this is an overstatement. Maybe you can nuance it for us. But there hasn't been huge strides made in regulation of big tech in general. Could you speak to how that might impact looking forward, not just regulating AI, but any other technology that comes along? Well, I think we've learned a lot from this period of sort of permissionless innovation, which was an explicit economic strategy in the U.S. around 1999, 2000, where literally they, you know, we as regulators said, we're just going to get out of the way. We're going to step back. Let's make some magic happen. Let's disrupt. Let's do stuff. Let's throw spaghetti at the wall. Years later, we're like, oh, fuck, there's spaghetti on the wall. Right? What? And then we're like, oh, this, there's a meatball. You know, meatballs matter. The, all these kinds of pasta matter. Yes, um, this is a terrible analogy. So <laughs> I'm, I'm d delete the analogy. But, you know, we've learned about, I think, the dangers of regulatory lag, not just in terms of harms to people, but also it can seem disingenuous to turn around to some of your hometown heroes and say, actually, this stuff you were doing that you've legitimized, that you've made a normal business activity that smaller companies of all sizes replicate, they're ripping from your playbook. By the way, you're not supposed to do this, right? And then the business community writ large can be upset because it's not just big tech that is self-preferencing in search or gatekeeping or charging certain commissions to participate. Again, just going around about with some of those, these behaviors. So I actually think that's promising for AI going forward because we are trying to, um, I'll use more like terrible analogies, we're trying to build the plane as it's flying. We're trying to be a little bit more responsive, a little bit more proactive, and that's part of why it's so messy. But I think with the largest technology companies now, we were so admiring of them, we were so optimistic that we were slow to really sort of generate consensus around what the harms were, and not just harms to consumers, but also harms for the broader marketplace. Is there a consensus on what the harms are? I mean, can we agree on those? I think that where we may have a consensus emerging is a consensus on policy remedies that addresses different theories of harm. Hmm. So, for example, I, in the same way that I'm skeptical that 
AI bros have created a super intelligence that's going to turn us all into gray goo. I am also skeptical that Facebook built a mind control ray to sell your nephew fidget spinners. Uh, but at the same time, like if I'm worried that Facebook is taking your data and handing it to the cops when you go to a demonstration, I'm worried that Facebook is taking your data and leaking it. I'm worried that Facebook is taking your data and making you not feel free to form groups and talk about who you really are because you feel like you're being watched. All the harms that we talk about traditionally from privacy. But if you believe that Facebook made a working mind control system, you and I can agree on a solution, which is to force Facebook to stop collecting our data, right? If we both agree on privacy, then we starve Facebook of the ammunition to commit all of the harms that all of us think about. I mean, we're seeing some interesting cases, I think, come forward in the U.S. kind of from a class action perspective where a generation is starting to say, we have been harmed. This firm has, you know, harmed us because of the, also with gaming, right? The amount of hours, the addictive design that's sort of intentional and sort of robbing people of their time in a particular way. So I, I think we're starting to get consensus in terms of what some of the harms are to children. I also think that there's so much that children engage with online that we're dismissive of because it seems like entertainment or because it's uh, online games or video games, which are like lightly lowercase are regulated, right? They tell us a lot about games in terms of how violent they may be, but there's also, you know, these multiverse, multiplayer games that are dependent on children building within them can also be viewed as a form of labor, of work. And are we normalizing for our young people that to participate online is also to build, to work, to annotate? You know, is that what play really is? is and does it just sort of condition us to be comfortable with metaverse you know when i was working on post 9 11 surveillance in the united states i often found myself on the same side as people from uh, religious minorities like mormons who have a long history of distrusting state surveillance in the united states because of the way it's been weaponized against them i don't have a lot in common with them spiritually or in terms of their social values but it was an area in which we both agreed and when you think about the bedrocks of our human and civil rights culture they are oriented around a baseline that lots of us agree on, even if we disagree why we should use it. And that's why it's so powerful. So you've discussed the harms, just back to your point earlier about, well, we can decide that there should be limits on the extraction of data and the violation of privacy. I'm curious how far down that road we are. Are we close to the point where we can tell Facebook no, there's a limit on the amount of data you can extract. So other competition authorities have this concept of excessive pricing in their competition law, which Canada doesn't actually contemplate. But I think as we've been talking about as Canadians now, you know, what feels like excessive pricing, voicing our concerns around greedflation, there's a general sense that, you know, being too extractive is harmful or something that we sort of don't want. And there have been cases, or at least a case, where excessive pricing was interpreted to sort of say, okay, the price of using Facebook, the price of your privacy and all this data is excessive relative to the benefit or what you're accessing, that it's just very imbalanced. So I think that's a good example of an application of an instrument we already have where we're using it in a really productive way. Are we thinking about it in Canada? We snuck in a, a little change to the Competition Act in the 2022 budget bill. So it was like super tucked in there, a little bit of omnibus action. Two very important words, consumer privacy. Now when we consider mm. the effects of merger and abuses of dominance, Canadian law can also consider the effect on and of consumer privacy. 
And there's a tiny little silver lining to having the internet dominated by a handful of giant companies, which is that when you drag one of those companies into court in Brussels or in D.C., and you open their books and you read their memos and you make the details of their dirty dealings public, you can be pretty sure that those facts apply everywhere else those companies operate too. And so you see, for example, the UK Competition and Markets Authority and the European Union pursuing parallel cases where they're pulling evidence out of each other's cases. Mm. Because whatever Facebook and Google and Microsoft and Oracle are, are, are doing in, in Europe, they're doing it in the UK and they're probably doing it in Canada too, which means that there's uh, opportunities for transnational collaboration among competition enforcers. It was a real mistake to let these monopolies form. That was the biggest regulatory mistake we made. Uh, the best time to have fought monopolies was 40 years ago. The second best time is now. And so all the competition regulators can regulate together. Corey Doctorow is the author of The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation. And Vas Bednar is the executive director of the Master of Public Policy in Digital Society program at McMaster University. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, on U.S. Public Radio, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Artificial intelligence could be one of the most disruptive technologies in history. And the AI world itself felt massive disruption over a few chaotic days in November. It's been a turbulent day for artificial intelligence company OpenAI. CEO and co-founder Sam Altman has been ousted by the company's board. The public face of AI fired. Then... Sam Altman back as CEO of OpenAI, bringing an end to this dramatic standoff. Reinstated after an employee revolt and investor backlash. Deep tensions underlie the stated mission of OpenAI, to develop artificial intelligence smarter than humans, and to do it safely and to the benefit of all humanity. Plenty of people inside the industry worry that those aims are incompatible with each other. And what if AI developers are failing at the first goal and not actually interested in the second? Vas Bednar and Cory Doctorow argued that point in a panel that I moderated at the Provocation Ideas Festival presented with the University of Waterloo's Stratford School of Interaction Design and Business. I asked about how potential dangers that technology already poses, election interference or biased algorithms, for example, could be exacerbated if AI is not adequately regulated. Well, one thing I would say is that we don't actually have a situation where there's no regulation. Sometimes we don't have something that's AI specific. But again, we have these tools, competition law, privacy law, copyright, that do apply to a lot of these questions. But we do 
need, I think, always to start by using the tools we already have before we're layering in kind of net new legislation. And this is a conversation Canada is having, too, as we renew the Competition Act. We're kind of asking, do we need something that's net new, that's sort of bright line that just either defines particular behaviors or singles out particular companies? And I do a lot of work just sort of reminding people that the tactics, the behaviors of a lot of these companies, independent from spreading myths and disinformation online, are replicated and, you know, aspired to by companies of all sorts of sizes, which is why I think it's important to focus on the behaviors, not just the biggest companies. Another kind of sneaky, cool thing I think Canada did from a regulatory perspective is we straight up said drip pricing, no more. Anybody that does drip pricing, regardless of the size of your firm, that's when you don't see the all-in price up front. Happens a lot of the time when you're booking a hotel or your airline seat. You have to advertise the full price up front. That falls under false and misleading advertising, but it's an, an example of sort of saying this behavior is never okay. In the U.S., there was proposed legislation to say the activity of self-preferencing. If you own and operate in a marketplace, which which is one of the fundamental digital competition challenges, but happens at you know grocery stores and uh, lots of retailers as well who are directly competing there. If you in search, you know, no disclosure, no ability to turn this off, are amplifying your own goods regardless of price, regardless of quality, just sort of always putting your meatballs first, that's not cool. That's an anti-competitive practice. Don't do it. That would be an example of focusing more on the behavior instead of saying, if you are a platform of unusual size and you do this, you're not allowed. But anyone else that does that, like grocery stores do it, are we okay with that? Do we even know that it's happening in the first place? How can we respond to something that's also unknowable? I think that if you're worried about election interference, regardless of your theory about election interference, whether it's just different people spending their points of view and convincing people, or whether you think that it's big data targeting people in ways that bypass their critical faculties or whatever, if we were to start by saying the private data that's used in the course of this targeting could not be collected, then we would resolve that issue. And moreover, the political coalition for prohibiting the collection of private data is much larger than merely people who care about election privacy, right? People who are worried about employment privacy and, and people who are worried about privacy in their religious conduct or their sexual conduct or what have you who don't want to be spied on. The benefits that would redound from this, you know, for example, we have a, a news bargaining code in Canada now that's supposed to make big tech pay for news. Well, I think that big tech does steal a lot from the news media, but what it steals is money. They take 30 cents out of every payment dollar that's collected in an app and 51 cents out of every advertising dollar. The historic margin for advertising intermediaries was 10 to 15%. Mm. Google and Meta are the buyer side, the seller side, and the marketplace. If we wanna make the news market better, rather than trying to have profit sharing arrangements that make partners out of big tech and big news, we could ban surveillance advertising, which would mean that advertising would have to be grounded in the content that you are advertising. I have here an article interesting to people who might be shopping for shoes, who would like to place an ad on it, rather than on the conduct of the reader. Now, big tech will always know more about us and our private lives than the news media will, but big tech will never know as much about the articles news media publishes than the news companies themselves. So the coalition for banning surveillance includes the news, 
people who care about election interference, people who care about their kids' privacy, people who care about their medical privacy, people who are just creeped out about it, sexual minorities, religious minorities, whole groups of people who can get stuff done. And we would get lots of knock-on benefits from it. How fertile the terrain do you think it is in Canada to hearing out people who make those arguments that there is a different approach when we talk about how uh, big tech extracts information online, both from the news media or from individuals? I think that there is a growing consensus that the old mission of regulators as to big tech, which was to make them behave themselves, has failed. And that the new mission has to be to make big tech smaller. And these are antithetical goals, right? You mm -hmm. can say to big tech, all right, there's a problem with harassment on your platform. And your platform is so important that the harassed people can't leave. And so they stay there and endure this awful misery, or they leave and endure the awful privation of being cut off from a very important place where, where they all hang out. From now on, you're going to have to police harassment. And they failed. They keep failing. And it's very hard to regulate because you have to agree on what harassment is. You have to agree on whether someone was harassed. You have to figure out whether or not the company did what they could to stop harassment. Seven years have gone by. Then you have a judgment. Meanwhile, there's been a million other instances in which people have had to make that awful choice of stay and endure harassment or leave and be cut off from important things. The alternative is you break up big tech. You force them to interoperate. You uh, force them to separate uh, so that you know Facebook can no longer own Instagram. Facebook bought Instagram because people were leaving Facebook to go to Instagram. They didn't want them to be able to escape. And those are antithetical goals, right? Companies can either monitor and control the conduct of all the people on their platform, or they can give the people on their platform the freedom to leave and continue to communicate with the people that they left behind to make it easy to go. And I think in the European Union, with the Digital Markets Act, which mandates interoperability, in the United States, where you've had multiple legislative um, attempts now to bring in interoperability and to break up the big tech companies, the latest is a Senate bill that breaks up the ad tech companies called the America Act that is so bipartisan its two main sponsors are Elizabeth Warren and Ted Cruz. And in, in other jurisdictions, you have seen a growing recognition that rather than making big tech behave, we should just get rid of big tech. That the problem isn't that Mark Zuckerberg is the wrong person to be the unelected social media czar for 4 billion people's lives. It's that the job shouldn't exist and we need to abolish the job. Abolish the job. I worry sometimes in Canada with our policy approach, because it does exist, but again, it's there's been an incoherence to it. We have a cybersecurity bill. We are trying to update the Privacy Act. We're trying to update copyright. We're bringing forward net new legislation for online content creators, news. We're waiting for our online harms legislation, which has moved out of heritage to justice, but no one's seen it yet. Uh, back to that regulatory lag situation, I, I worry that we still treat public policy as if we carve it in stone, right? I don't carve into stone anymore. Maybe you do. But we have this idea that it's got to be really perfect, airtight. We want to get to 10 out of 10. I don't disagree with that. We need to be as imaginative and aspirational as we can. But sometimes the option is to go from a 4 out of 10 to a 7 before we get to 10, right? We sort of in some policy areas, we keep sending the meal back to the chef, and that's okay, but the restaurant is closing. So, you know, if we're not going to get certain interventions to the finish line by a certain political timeline, it's not necessarily true that we're going to pick up these very same conversations in a different political environment.
I wanted to return to the question you asked before about repeating the mistakes we've made and about yes. what new things we could do. So I came up through tech policy talking about copyright and what copyright could enable and what it could restrict and so on. And it's a very contentious issue. And it's certainly come up a lot with AI. And I, I like to think about the historic example that I think is closest to AI, which is the rise and fall of sampling as we understood it. Mm -hmm. So sampling, when it kicked off, was was not an activity that implicated copyright for its practitioners. You're they talking just about music sampling. Music sampling. They didn't even think about it. No one got permission. No one thought you needed it. A lot of musicians who are from Heritage Acts, which is um, it's basically a euphemism the record industry uses for black artists, uh, who had been very badly abused by the system, were angry that they were being sampled and they weren't being compensated for it, as well they should be. And so the answer that was arrived at was to create the individual bargainable right to control your samples. And all of this happened as the record labels were consolidating down to three companies, Sony, Warner, and Universal, that controlled 70% of the catalog. And if you want a sample, you have to be signed to one of these labels. And when you sign to one of these labels, you have to sign away your right to control your samples. Which means that today, if you want a sample, for every sample, you take $500 out of your advance and you give it to either Sony, Warner, or Universal. You also sign a contract to be recorded on Sony, Warner, or Universal and sign away a whole ton of other rights. The $500 you give up doesn't go to another artist, it goes to a shareholder. So now every artist is poorer in multiple ways. And then to make things even worse, whole genres of music can't be made anymore. So Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back was one of the most successful hip hop albums of all time. If you were to release that today and clear all those samples, you'd have to sell every CD for $150. So we made a genre of music extinct. We made every artist poorer, and we encouraged market concentration, right? This is not a good outcome. And today, we have this thing with AI. And I look at most AI-generated art, and I think this is not very good. None of it impresses me. There's a novelty factor in reading an algorithm describing how to take a grilled cheese sandwich out of a VCR in the style of the King James Bible. But you've seen one of those, you've seen them all. And it, the joke gets thin really quickly. So on the one hand, I'm prepared to believe that like in 10 years, we'll look back on this and go, can you believe we ever thought this stuff would be popular. But I'm also prepared to believe that in 10 years that we'll look back on it and say, can you believe that we never thought that this could be art? I don't know which one it's going to be. Here's what I worry about. If we create an individual bargainable right that's immediately transferred to the highly consolidated entertainment sector, five giant publishers, four giant studios, three giant labels, two giant ad tech companies, one company that controls all the venues and booking, right? then we are going to do exactly what we did with sampling. Make every artist poorer, extinguish the kind of creative stuff that in 10 years we'll go, oh my God, this is amazing, and encourage even further consolidation. We can always imagine a different social arrangement for technology, that we don't have to stop with asking what the technology does, and we can ask who it does it for and who it does it to, and try to imagine some other way that those things could be arranged, or decide not to use technologies, right? The inevitableism of technology uh, going from one to 60 and then staying sticking around forever, it's just not true. We, we discard technologies all the time, including technologies that people like. It riffs on what you were saying about imagination and the importance of it, even in making public policy about te big tech. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of what we're talking about when we're sort of having this broader discussion about artificial intelligence does come down to autonomy and freedom. So maybe I'm remiss to suggest that in different political atmospheres, certain regulatory questions aren't as popular, but we're trying to ask also what's appropriate for us to give permission to, what are we actually sharing, how do we and do we even benefit from what's built, right? Especially when large companies are basically saying that they're entitled to 
all the exhaust and kind of what we create online. And if I followed you around for the next few days, kind of noting where you've been, what you looked at, how fast you were walking, how many breaths you took, how many times you blinked your eyes when you went to the washroom, you would probably find that problematic and weird. But we don't in a digital context because we don't always notice that it's happening. So I think imagining some of those parallels in, in a physical context help us appreciate what's excessive and what's helpful. It is possible for big tech to be making inferences about us based on our private data that are 100% wrong without that being harmless. Leading television experts, cameramen, soundmen, engineers choose Motorola. Leading television stars like Ruth Hussey, Edward Arnold... In the 50s, TV sets became household items... TV was criticized for turning us into sort of blobs, always needing entertainment. In the 30s, radio was criticized for making people less engaged with society and sitting at home listening to the wireless. Even the telegraph was criticized for being too fast for the truth. Even further back, Socrates thought that the new technology of writing corrupted authentic learning. Is, is AI just another thing we have to get used to? Well, my big question is when the bubble pops, because it's going to pop, right? We, it has all the characteristics of a bubble. The question is what will be left when it pops? You know, WorldCom was a bubble in fiber building. They were hugely fraudulent, grotesque enterprise that uh, took a lot of money from institutional investors and pension funds and built a lot of fiber that no one knew how to use. And then they went bust. But at least there was a lot of fiber left behind when they were done. A lot of the fiber that's being lit up now is fiber that was bought for pennies on the dollar from the ashes of WorldCom. Enron also a giant fraud, and all that was left when it was done was broken hearts, right? So are there enough applications for AI once the AI bubble pops to keep all those servers running? We don't know if that's the case, and so much of our policy is about what we do if AI succeeds. What are we going to do about companies and uh, even you know government agencies that have integrated these models into their workflow if AI doesn't succeed and if it becomes an orphan technology it's as though, you know, the Bank of Canada retooled around cryptocurrency and then we have to figure out what to do now that we've all finally agreed that cryptocurrency is a giant scam and yet the economy is built around it. Mm. This, this, we often worry about the, the problems of things succeeding. We should also think about the implications of this failing. I don't think the ubiquity of applying these technologies to our everyday lives is inevitable. And maybe we should be learning a little bit more from small and medium-sized Canadian businesses who are criticized because they've been slow to adopt these technologies, right? We have major productivity problems in this country, and it's a risk for us from a regulatory perspective too, because we probably need to get that spaghetti on the wall because we feel we want to make the economy grow. So maybe we shouldn't have too many guardrails and, you know, let companies do stuff that might be cool and, you know, might sort of have these broader economic spoils. Maybe there are reasons that firms aren't applying these technologies. Maybe they're not actually that useful. And maybe as individuals, it's cool or novelty or feels like a party trick to be able to have some research summarized for you online or some funny titles written, et cetera, but it's not replacing our work or, or doing a better job than we actually are. So I still think uh, that's a no for me, dog. <laughs> What's the utopian version? So for me, a utopian vision of technology is one in which we have technological self-determination. So that if a company has trapped all of your friends inside of its silo, 
and you don't like their policies, but you like your friends, you can go somewhere else and they are required to allow you to continue to send messages to the people you left behind. The same way you can leave your phone carrier and go to another one and not mm-hmm. have to stop talking to the people you've got in your phone's memory in this idea that we have this, this bargain between companies and their users where they say, well, here's the offer that we're going to give you. You can say, here's my counter offer. I'm going to use this part of your technology and that part of your technology. I'm going to block this part. I'm going to throw away all of the suggestions that Instagram sends me and just have a feed of the things that the people I follow have posted in reverse chronological order. And I'm going to use someone else's tool to get it. So that's my vision. And it's not static. It changes based on what we need. It changes based on our preferences. It changes based on the ideas that people come up with. If someone has a way to make an existing service better, they can offer you the tool to change how that service behaves. And the only thing that would stand in the way of them doing it is if they were violating your privacy or your labor rights or your consumer rights. That is a world of dynamism and rights and technological self-determination where the technology changes all the time, but it changes in ways that reflect what we actually want and not what can be crammed down our throats. The consumer protection lens ends up being very valuable a lot of the time. I'd like to make sure that people know that an algorithm is determining the price that they might pay for something or the discount that they're receiving. I'd like us to be able to turn it off. I'd like us to be able to say no. I'd like us to not have the price of participating in a loyalty program so I can save a little bit of money on my groceries, be my data and my browsing history. I'd like us all to be able to access the same discounts that we used to when we just got a dumb flyer in the mail and we sort of all had access to to the same elements. So that's something that I end up imagining quite a bit. Following the panel, Vas Bednar and Corey Doctorow took questions from the audience, starting with one about the role of regulation in making sure people have access to technology that works for them and not just what tech companies want to sell them. It's a cool question because sometimes we get stuck in the structures that we have from a regulatory kind of perspective, and and that defines how we operate. One element I was thinking of from the conversation earlier, you know, why are people calling for regulation? What does that mean? Regulation in and of itself can also be very legitimizing, legitimizing for an entire industry. Is that kind of why we hear these calls? You know, we totally want to be regulated in a in a particular way. So I love that you're bringing it up. I think. I think the movement and the advances we've been making in digital government are very, very promising as we realize that a lot of the time we're designing public policies that are products, you know, that are services in terms of how people interact with them. That said, I think we always have to have these analog options. We can't just keep directing people to websites or ask them to download an app. I think you have to be able to call and speak to a person or go and actually see a person. And I do not want to speak to a person who's a chatbot who doesn't disclose that they are an automated program. That really grinds my gears. I'm just making my way through a book called Blood in the Machine. Yeah, Brian's a pal of mine by Brian Merchant. Excellent (laughs) book. Yes, I don't know if you have any comments about what he's exploring uh, or examining the parallels between the advent of the Industrial Revolution and our contemporary times of the technology. And my second question, is there any room to be able to have the right to live analog? 
The right to live analog. I like it. I think we need to make sure, again, from a government services perspective, even shopping, I think, is getting harder. You know, if you want to access certain economies, you have to do it through sort of an e-commerce element. Should these companies be mandated to allow you to dial the phone number to call in and place your order or fax, you know, an order. I think under certain caveats in different provinces, specifically BC, I know through consumer protection, you actually have to be able to purchase in a wide variety of ways. But I think that's a lovely thing to think about going forward so that people have more choice and aren't constrained. I think, you know, these companies argue their digital services are superior and that's why they've rolled them out. Mm. And I think if that were the case, then when you got to the airport, that first class line that's very short would have no one in it because they'd all be off using those wonderful self-serve kiosks that are infinitely preferable to speaking to a human. And I think that if that's not the case, then we have a little existence proof that they have not offered a superior automation thing. If rich people, when they have the choice, choose the human and not the machine, then you know that you're being forced to use the machine and not giving an improved experience with the machine. And if uh, they always have a human option and no one takes it, then you know that they've gotten the automation right. Um, On your question about Brian Merchant's book, so Brian Merchant is the technology critic for the LA Times. He's the first technology critic at a major daily in America. He's a wonderful writer. Blood in the Machine is a magisterial history of the Luddites. And everything you know about the Luddites is probably wrong. Mm. We, We know them as technophobes who got angry at the machines and smashed them like Frankenstein's monster. Really, textile workers of the, in the Industrial Revolution were the most skilled technologists of the day, right? To become a member of the guild, you had to do a seven-year apprenticeship. This was like doing a, a master's in engineering at Waterloo. And what they were angry about was not that there was automation in the factory. It was that their bosses had gone out and invested in machines that they said were so easy that a child could use them, specifically because they wanted to fire all the adults and kidnap Napoleonic war orphans from the orphanages of London, send them to Manchester, and indenture them for a decade and beat them and starve them to make textiles without having to go through the guilds anymore. And that was what they were angry about. Not what the machines did, but who they did it for and who they did it to. Um, They were, in fact, regulatorily entitled to have co-determination over these machines. There were laws about how these machines could be rolled out, and Parliament refused to enforce those laws. And it was only then that they started smashing machines, and their bosses responded by killing them. You know, the response was, was incredibly brutal. You had property damage on the one hand, you had mass hangings and vigilante killings on the other. It was a, it, completely disproportionate. And, you know, at the time, there was a lot of sympathy for the Luddites. A guy named Robert Blinko, is one of the orphans who survived the factories, wrote a best-selling memoir that so moved Charles Dickens that he wrote Oliver Twist based on it. Oliver Twist is Luddite fanfic. Mary Shelley... <laughs> writing about entrepreneurs whose machines got away from them and destroyed society was a Luddite sympathizer. It tells you just how much history is written by the winners, but not just how much history is written by the winners, but how much history is erased by the winners. How little of those stories we know these days. And Brian is touring America right now, and they are buying terrible technology like ring doorbell cameras and smashing them on stage with a giant hammer in good Luddite fashion. They're called the uh, Luddite Tribunals. There's video on various video sharing services that you can go and watch if you're interested. And the relevance of that to the moment? Brian is interested in the labor question of technology. The most successful fielding anyone's had in the creative arts and and, uh, AI so far are the unions of Hollywood. 
who did not win the individual right to decide who could train a model with their work, and instead won the contractual right not to be replaced by AI. You know, the first one is the right to be angry about what your boss does. The second one is the right to be employed and put braces on your kids' teeth and groceries on your table. Between the two, I think creative workers really need the second. Mm. And boy, oh boy, did they ever win it. And when you look at the structure of the writer's deal, for example, where they, they have the right to use AI and their bosses can bring AI into the shop, they just can't pay them any less or fire any of them. This is basically the death knell of AI in the studios, right? They are not going to pay an extra 10 million bucks a year for a site license for ChatGPT and pay all their writers. But the only reason they were excited about this was so they could fire all the writers and replace them with chatbots. Mm. If they can't fire any writers, they don't need the chatbots. Mm -hmm. We forget about our power, not just our power politically, but our power, frankly, as purchasers. And I think we're seeing that people do generally have an impetus to reject the synthetic. Do we really want to read a book that an algorithm wrote that, you know, jumbled everything? Do we really want to listen to, you know, music that's being made in, in that way? To your question, in the future, are we going to look at this and say this is a whole new genre of art where we have so many more, you know, monuments to it and we admire it. It's all our wallpaper on our desktop. Or are you going to say that was hilarious? You know, remember where you were when you used to do that? The High-tech sector has been extraordinarily successful, both economically, but also in evading regulation. Mm -hmm. One of your solutions was, of course, more regulation. Why are you more optimistic that regulation could succeed now where it hasn't over the past 40 years? I don't think regulation is, a, is an impediment to economic gains. I think we you know, default to sort of putting, putting those things in opposition with each other. Having the right guardrails helps everyone. It helps the people who want to use technologies, it helps shareholders, it helps the companies that oversee this tech. And Canada has very interesting technology areas that we can and should be leaders. Canada is leading research and applications of genomics, which a lot of it is AI powered in really fascinating ways. We are literally making fire resistant trees. You know, that is still a generally a regulated space uh, and it's not incompatible with sort of economic rewards. I think we're agreeing that there's a role for governments to make digital marketplaces more free and fair. They are regulated. They're regulated by the companies that dominate them, who make the rules in their own favor and, and set the rules and prices. And that, I think, is what we're trying to use more traditional tools to change. Vas Bednar is the executive director of the Master of Public Policy in Digital Society program at McMaster University, where she also teaches political science. Cory Doctorow is a technology writer and award-winning author of science fiction and young adult novels, whose latest book is The Internet Con. The panel took place at the Provocation Ideas Festival in Stratford, Ontario in November. Special thanks to Mark Rosenfeld, founding director of the festival, and to Greg McIntyre and Noah Pratt for their technical work. This episode was produced by Chris Wadskow and Greg Kelly. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayed.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.